Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 433, North Wales. I love mess. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Deidre, Stefan, and Keegan for signing up already. In 1075, King Blethyn's star was on the rise. He ruled over both Gwyneth and Powys. He struck fear into those he met on the battlefield. And he had demonstrated himself such a threat that the Normans actually tried to assassinate him. Repeatedly. But he was still very much alive kicking ass, and taking heads. If any Welsh leader was likely to take up the project of Welsh unification, which had been started by King Gruffith, it was probably his half-brother, King Blethyn. And I suspect that the title of King of Wales sounded pretty good to Blethyn these days, because he suddenly became very interested in the affairs of the Southwest. Now, if you remember... Things in southwestern Wales had gotten hairy lately. King Caradog, like King Blethyn, had been focused on expanding his power, which is a polite way of saying he was annexing his neighbors. So, as Blethyn was commanding more and more of northern and eastern portions of Wales, Caradog had steadily been increasing his power in the south. And this inevitably put Caradog on a collision course with the Dinafaur dynasty of De Hybarth. And the eldest of that line, at the time, was King Meredith of De Hybarth. So, King Caradog defeated him, and he annexed De Hybarth. However, King Meredith had a brother. His name was Rhys Apawain. And he didn't give up so easily. So while Caradog had declared himself king over the southwest, Rhys insisted that he was the actual king of Dehybarth. And we don't know much about the conflict that followed, but we do know that it raged for at least three years. And by this point in the story, 1075, Rhys seems to have gained a significant foothold, possibly ruling over most of Devid. And we think this. Because by 1075, Rhys held power over the territory of Estrad Tewi. And this is important because if King Caradog wanted to move from his lands in Gwent and into Devid, he would have to go through Estrad Tewi. And so, I think it's a reasonable assumption that Rhys held control over a sizable chunk of Dehybarth at this time since Rhys's lands to the west were functionally cut off from anything that Caradog could control. It was a clever move by Rhys, at least as far as his Caradog problem went. Unfortunately, holding Estrad Tawi did nothing to protect his lands from attacks from the north, which is where King Blethyn was building his power base. Making matters worse, King Blethyn was friendly with King Caradog of Gwent, and while we aren't given many specifics, I think it's very likely that at this point, Rhys was feeling squeezed and was probably on the verge of collapsing under the pressure of these two forces. Because suddenly, Rhys did something unexpected. He reached out to Blethyn, and he promised the king 
a conquest of the South. Now, the records don't tell us precisely what the terms of this promised conquest were. But my best guess is that after three years of fighting, Reese realized that he was going to lose eventually. And he would rather be annexed into King Bledon's kingdom than be conquered by the guy who had recently killed his brother. That's just a guess, but it's what makes sense to me given what little information we have. I mean, I suppose it is possible that Bledon was traveling as a mediator or as Caradog's proxy to bring an end to this sustained war. But the wording of the record doesn't make it sound like that was the case. It sounds much more like a promise of annexation. But whatever Reese offered, it got King Bledon's attention. And he traveled south to Estrad Tewi to meet with Reese. And, well, Bledon really should have paid a bit more attention to Welsh history. He didn't even need to go all that far back. He could have just taken note of the story of his own half-brother. Because the last time that Estrad Tawi appeared in our story, the lords of that region had tried to assassinate King Gruffith of Wales. Treachery was the name of the game here. And while the Welsh Annals report that the lords of Estrad Tawi failed to get their hands on King Gruffith, they also tell us that they killed 140 members of Gruffith's personal warband in their attempt. So that's quite a body count that these lords had racked up the last time that they met with a king from North Wales. And now another king from North Wales, Blethyn, was riding south to attend a meeting in their lands. And once Blethyn got there, well, he didn't ride out. He and whoever he was with were assassinated by King Rhys and the lords of Estrad Tewi. And this, by the way, is why you're not going to find me visiting Camarthen anytime soon. I might have lost my accent, but I'm still from North Wales, and I'm not taking any chances. Now, this assassination put the throne of Gwyneth in a bit of a bind here. Because King Blethyn had sons, but they were also young. Like, really young. Way too young to rule. So Gwyneth which have been so close to expanding their power, were now thrust into a succession crisis. And taking advantage of the chaos of that moment, a nobleman from the border region between Powys and Gwyneth seized control. His name was Traherne. And new King Traherne was Bledin's cousin. Maybe. It's honestly unclear. But regardless of whether or not he had a blood relation to any of King Bledon's disinherited sons, his seizure of the throne meant that the internecine wars of Wales were still on. Because even Gwyneth, which had so recently unified Wales, was now dealing with multiple dynasties who all felt they were owed the throne. And speaking of those dynasties, do you remember King Iago of Gwyneth? He was the king who ruled Gwyneth in the 1020s and 1030s and was a descendant of King Rodri the Great and also a member of the powerful Aberfra dynasty. Well, you might remember that unlike his famous ancestor, Rodri Mauer, Iago didn't find battle all that thrilling and he had a habit of hiding out in Anglesey in times of conflict, which seems to have annoyed his personal retinue to such an extent that they killed him. And he was quickly replaced by someone who did enjoy battle, King Gruffith, who 
who then went on to become King Gruffith of all of Wales. Well, when all that happened, Iago actually had a son, Cunan, but he was obviously disinherited by Gruffith and fled to Ireland. Once there, he married a local girl, a highly ranked local girl, in fact, Reynald, who was the daughter of Olaf Citrixen and the granddaughter of King Citrix Silkbeard of Dublin. Now, unfortunately, we don't know much about Cunan's life following his exile. The Ulster Chronicle claims that he was involved in the assassination of King Gruffith, but the Welsh sources claim that actually Gruffith was killed by his own men. And in this instance, I definitely give weight to the Welsh sources because I suspect they would have known the circumstances much better than the Irish. I also find it hard to imagine Gruffith would have let Coonan anywhere near him considering the fact that he personally disinherited the guy. So I strongly suspect that the Ulster Chronicle got this one wrong and that for the most part, Coonan just vanished into the midst of time before dying sometime in the early 1060s, but not before having a son of his own, who he named Gruffith, because that was actually a really common Welsh name back then. So, at this point in our story, in 1075, this Gruffith, Coonan's son, was living in Ireland, and he had grown to his late teens or early 20s. And unlike most Welsh nobles, we actually have a surviving biography for Gruffith ap Cunan. Even better, it's near contemporary to his life. This record is titled The Vita Griffini Fili Conani, or translated, The Life of Gruffith ap Cunan. Now, historians are always happy to have a document, literally any document. But that doesn't mean that this thing was a carefully sourced encyclopedia. And to give you an idea of what we're dealing with here, the scribes who wrote this record claim that Gruffith ap Cunan was descended from the Son of God, and not like we're all God's creatures. No, this was part of the argument for why he, personally, had both a dynastic right to rule and also the divine right to rule. And they give us the full genealogy to prove it. Honestly, there's a lot of Bible in this thing. And even when the scribes aren't directly quoting it, they're making a ton of references. Making it even more strange, amidst the odd blend of Bible study and my heritage searches, they pause to write floridly about things like how good Gruffith was at jumping. Apparently, he had leaps. And so did his horse. We're told that they were best compared to Sinar, the horse of Achilles, or to Bucephalus. Yeah, that Bucephalus the horse of Alexander the Great. Apparently, Gruffith and his horse would have dominated at the basketball court. So what I'm getting at is that the Vita was not a coolly impartial account. But then again, none of our sources are. And it's mostly through this document that we know about what happened next. Gruffith's mother, Reynald, had apparently raised her son well. We're told that he was well-mannered and raised specifically as a noble of Dublin, as in he was raised within that culture. But at the same time, she made sure he remembered his roots and taught Gruffith who his father was and how he had died in Dublin because tyrants had stolen the kingdom of Gwyneth from him. And learning of this threw Gruffith into a depression. Not because he was reminded of the death of his father, no, the scribes tell us that what depressed young Gruffith was the fact that he should have been a king, and instead, 
he was just knocking around, condemned to being one of the richest people in the Isles and a member of at least two royal dynasties. Which, you know, tough break. So Gruffith moped about a bit before doing what we all do when we hit hard times. He met with the king and asked for help in reclaiming his kingdom. A kingdom, I'll remind you, that he had never seen before. But whatever, this descendant of Rodri Maurer and grandson of King Iago wanted his birthright. And whenever I read accounts like this, what I can't get over is that this is what passes for medieval probate law. Because much like today, if you aren't in a will, or if you think that a will wasn't executed properly, you can dispute it. It doesn't matter at all if, like Gruffith, you've never seen the property that you're claiming ownership of. And because this was a time when a person was literally allowed to inherit an entire kingdom, well, that meant that these inheritance disputes had a lot more consequences. But then again, despite these high stakes, apparently no one thought to create a probate court to handle these cases. Instead, if you wanted to file a dispute, you'd need to get some boys together, head over to the lands that you wanted, and start killing people. Then keep killing people until the folks who were left agreed that you were the rightful heir. It was a stupid system, but it was their system. And King Murhad of Dublin graciously heard Gruffith's concerns over the application of Welsh estate law, and he decided to give the boy some proper representation. By which I mean, the king agreed to provide Gruffith with an army of Irish Vikings who were more than happy to kill any local Welshman who didn't want Gruffith as their king. Armed with this promise, Gruffith boarded a ship and sailed to the southwestern tip of Anglesey. Once there, he sent out messengers, and in short order, he met with the various lords of Anglesey and expressed his desire to claim Gwyneth. And when he landed, he did find local lords who weren't pleased with how King Treherne had seized the throne. And apparently, Powys had also broken off entirely and was now being ruled by a son of King Rewathlin. So overall, the mood in Anglesey was grim, and at least some of the nobility were ready for a change. So they readily proclaimed their fealty to Gruffith and promised to fight on his behalf. With that handled, Gruffith hopped back on his ship and headed east to Rivlin to meet with the Norman commander Robert, the nephew of Hugh Legras of Chester, who had been tasked with dominating Gwyneth. And he wasn't there to fight him. No, it turned out that Gruffith didn't just want Irish support for his conquest, he also wanted Norman support. And Robert probably couldn't believe his luck. In the space of just a few short months, King Blevin, the man he'd been ordered to bring down, had been killed. And now this teenager from Ireland was looking to dethrone Blevin's replacement. That's great. Because best case scenario, they'd usurp the throne, and based on the terms of the agreement, this new King Gruffith would be a vassal of Robert. Worst case scenario, they wouldn't take the throne, but the Welsh would be battered and exhausted from the fighting, and that would make it all the easier for Robert to sweep in and finish the job. Either way, the Normans win. So Robert readily agreed to the proposition. But then things got weird. 
See, it turned out that Gruffith actually had some family in the area. There was a woman named Tangwistle, and she happened to be a seer. And before Gruffith could get back on his ship, Tangwistle buttonholed the young man and told him that she had seen his future and that he would become king. Then, after what I assume was a lengthy reading, she gave him a fancy shirt and a tunic sewn from a cloak worn by the first king of all of Wales. Which, if I'm being honest, is as good as Gruffith could have hoped for. Because, while your mileage may vary, every time I've had someone at a party offer to read my tarot, I've never come away with new clothes. Usually, all I get is someone saying, Wow, that is a lot of swords. And more often than not, it's the ten. I'd much rather just have the shirt. Anyway, now that Gruffith had gotten some secondhand clothes from an off-brand Lady of the Lake, he sailed back to Ireland, collected his Dublin fighters, and then returned to the southwestern tip of Anglesey, where he established a camp. And there were way more than just Irish Vikings staying at this camp. There were also Welsh nobles who had been deposed or otherwise oppressed, as well as their followers. And there are also those who just generally were looking for a change for their own reasons. And there were Norman knights. Because Robert of Rivlin had been good to his word. And he was here, ready to crack some local Welsh skulls. And once everyone was assembled, it was time to put the plan into action. Gruffith dispatched a mixed army of Welsh and Norman fighters. And he gave them orders to hunt down and kill King Chenric of Powys. And we're told that this guy was the son of King Rivothlin ap Kinfin. And while this is the first time we've heard of Chenric, it's entirely possible that Rivothlin did have a son before he died. And given the situation in Wales, when he died, maybe his brother Blethyn was the one who seized control of Powys. But then when Blethyn died, the throne reverted back to Rivothlin's branch, thus making his son King Chenric. That's totally believable. And given the chaos of this period, it's also probable that only the odd Welsh source, like the life of Gruffith, would actually take note of him. Hell, even in better recorded areas of Britain, we're still discovering previously unknown kings. So there very well may have been a King Chenric of Powys, just as the scribes of the Vita report. But in that case, Gruffith's Welsh Norman force was looking to fix that. And you might have noticed that Gruffith and his Dublin fighters were not mentioned in that mission. Why? Well, it turned out that they were staying back on Anglesey in their harbor, waiting to see, quote, what fate should happen to them, end quote. I guess Gruffith wanted North Wales, but not so much that he was willing to go out into all this weather. So, while the dirty business of estate law was being handled in the field, Gruffith and his boys were nice and cozy in their tents. Until suddenly, a young man named Ian burst back into camp. Barely able to catch his breath, he told Gruffith and the assembled Irish mercenaries that the army had taken the King of Powys completely by surprise and had killed him, as well as a good number of his followers. And then, still panting, the boy added, Hey, remember how in the Bible, King David rewarded a messenger with a fine armlet for bringing word of victory in the field? Well, funny story, there's this woman, Delat, who used to be King Blethyn's mistress, and apparently she's really hot, and, well, I'd like her to be my armlet. Real cool, kid. 
Moments later, the victorious troops marched back into camp. And buoyed by their victory, they urged Gruffith to leave his harbor and conquer the rest of Gwyneth. So he gave the order, and the full army, and the full army marched out. And as they marched, they took homage from those who were willing to accept Gruffith as king. And they killed those who wouldn't. Until finally, King Traherne was forced to respond. And he gathered his own army and met the forces of the usurper. The scribes call this battlefield the Bloody Land, which obviously wasn't the real name of the place. So I'm not sure exactly where this battle took place. But you can guess how it all went down. This was a brutal struggle. And many Welshmen lost their lives in the fighting. But eventually, Traherne was forced to retreat. Gruffith chased him, but given that he wasn't all that familiar with Wales, he soon lost track of the fleeing king. And as a next best option, he decided to just declare himself king of Gwyneth instead. And we're told that he then immediately pacified the kingdom and ruled them with a rod of iron. And that might seem like a weird way to describe a reign, or perhaps an indication that he ruled in some particularly ruthless way. But the scribes of the Vita were actually making a literary reference that other scribes would have been quite familiar with. They were linking the reign of Gruffith to the book of Revelations, specifically the passage 227. Quote, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. End quote. The scribes are declaring that Gruffith's rule was divine and foretold by none other than the big man himself. And on the one hand, having people talk about you as a divine ruler does confer a great deal of authority. I mean, there's a reason why so many cult leaders opt for end-time prophecy associations. But on the other hand, it sets up a hell of an expectation and one that becomes increasingly difficult to keep up with. I mean, if you're just some guy claiming to be king, you can be cautious. You can stay back at camp and see how things are going. You can take it slow. You can form alliances with dubious figures for strategic reasons. But if folks start to think of you as somehow more than just some guy, if they start to see you as the culmination of a divine promise, well, then you better start delivering. And so, when the nobles came to new King Gruffith and complained that his ally, Robert of Rithlin, was illegally occupying their lands, well, he had no choice. He had to gather an army and deal with it. Meanwhile, inside the Mott and Bailey castle at Rivlin, Robert and his guys were probably pretty pleased with how things had been going recently. King Blethyn was gone. King Traherne was deposed. Their ally, Gruffith, was now on the throne and the vassal of Robert. All in all, Robert must have known that his boss, Earl Hugh of Chester, and his boss's boss, King William, would be pretty happy with the job he'd been doing here. And then an army of Welshmen, and I assume Irish fighters from Dublin, appeared on the horizon. And I'm not sure if it was immediately obvious that this was a hostile army. And actually, based on the language of the Vita, I'm guessing it wasn't. Instead, 
it kind of sounds like when Gruffith marched up to Rithlin Castle, he was assumed to be friendly. Like perhaps they thought he was there to seek Robert's support for another campaign. But then the Vita tells us he raised his ensigns, meaning his flags, and the army rushed the bailey that was holding the Norman forces. Quote, many French knights, armored and helmeted, fell from their horses in the fight, and many footmen likewise perished. And King Gruffith and his men took possession of the bailey, plundering it and burning it, end quote. However, a few Normans, including Robert himself, managed to flee up the hill to the Mont. And, well, like we've talked about in previous episodes, it was the Mott that made these damn castles so difficult to take. And true to form, the Welsh were having a devil of a time taking that Mott. So Gruffith and his men had turned an ally into an enemy, and critically, they had failed to completely defeat that enemy. So now, the new Welsh king wasn't just lacking Robert's support. He was stuck. If he lifted that siege, you could bet that Robert would be heading back to England to gather some knights and get some payback. He had no choice but to keep Robert pinned at Rivlin. And that made him rather vulnerable. And not just from Robert and the Normans. The fact was that while Gruffith's father was Welsh, that was probably where his ties to the region stopped. Gruffith was born in Ireland to an Irish mother who ensured that he was raised in Irish culture. And he was running around with a band of Irish soldiers. Lineage made him half Welsh. Culture made Gruffith Irish. And that culture was starting to clash. This wasn't exactly an enlightened time in history where differences were appreciated, celebrated, or even tolerated. Furthermore, by stationing his troops in the local communities, Gruffith had ensured ever-increasing tension and resentment among the people he was now claiming to rule. I mean, this type of policy was one of the ways that Britain lost its American colonies. And that final insult proved to be the last straw for the people in northwestern Gwynedd, the area that is now modern-day Carnarvonshire. They had absolutely had it with this guy. And with Griffith distracted, the locals took the opportunity to identify the nearby homes that were occupied by Gruffith's Irish soldiers and his household guard. There were fully 220 of them. And once they assembled that list, they decided to pay those soldiers a visit. A late night visit. The kind of visit you only get once. Suddenly, some of Gruffith's most experienced and reliable supporters, who were tasked with holding down the West, were dead. And then King Traherne emerged from Powys, and with him came a host of men drawn from the hills, and they marched back into eastern Gwynedd. You see, it turned out that the people of Powys were all too happy to march into Gwynedd and fight the man who had ordered the death of their king. And they weren't alone. While Gruffith still had a lot of support from Anglesey, not everyone was pleased with the direction of this new leadership. And when some of the nobility saw the widespread assassinations that were taking place just across the strait, well, they thought that was f***ing awesome, and they joined in. This was a disaster. Gruffith was stuck fighting with Robert in the east of Gwynedd, 
And in the West, the very people he relied upon to propel his fight in the East had wasted no time in attacking him from the rear. And now Traherne and his men from Powys were attacking from the South. Even worse, Traherne was now gathering together with the rebels of the West and forming into one great host. King Gruffith had only one move left. Fight. But this time, he wasn't supported by a bunch of Normans and Irishmen. Many of his Irish soldiers were dead. And as for those Normans, well, any who survived were now looking to chop his head off at the earliest opportunity. So he only had his surviving Irish soldiers and whoever remained loyal from Anglesey and Carnarvonshire. But given how those folks were from the same area that had recently assassinated a bunch of Griffith's household guard, he probably wasn't overly confident. But at the same time, there wasn't much he could do about that now. And so he pursued the army to the Flynn Peninsula, and at a battlefield called Brawny Hour, near Clonog Fower, he met Traherne and his men. And this battle must have gone on for quite some time. Also, the armies must have been closely matched because we're told that both sides took heavy casualties and that many Welsh nobles died in the fighting. But eventually, Gruffith saw things turning against him. And so he fled the battlefield, hopped back on his ship that was moored nearby, and retreated to Ireland. Traherne was once again king of Gwyneth. And Gruffith was once again a rich kid in Dublin. And, you know, given how this all went down... That cousin witch of his probably should have given Gruffith a PR agent instead of a secondhand cloak. But what are you going to do? Now, for the scribes of the Vita, this downfall compares to major betrayals ranging from ancient Rome to the Bible. But I don't know. This feels a lot less like evil men thwarting divine right and a lot more like a demonstration of the iron law of life. Fuck around and find out. And speaking of finding out, while all of this was going on in Wales, Waltheof was sitting in prison, wondering what William had planned for him. And he'll find out next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. 